One thing I would advise is, and kids these days are getting better at doing this, find your passion, but whatever work you need to do to get to your passion may not be a linear path. So as you and I have done, we worked in jobs we didn't necessarily like building blocks, right? But have that work ethic and a work ethic will get you much further in life than a chance to do your one thing you're passionate about. But as long as you know when to switch it around. Welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today we are going to talk about a friend, a property entrepreneur who went from doing casual small jobs selling cash registers to building a property empire. His name is Goro Gupta. We are going to share a story of how he became a successful property entrepreneur. How did that transition work from this sales agent selling cash registers at the age of 17 and 16 to basically becoming a massive property entrepreneur running a big ethical property investment group. We are also going to talk about the biggest failures in his life and what was the learning process, the big turning points, and how did he use those adversities to turn his life around and become the man he has become today. You're also going to talk about his life in relation to self-development and the ecosystem that he has managed to build around the NDIS investing space. And in just order to sum all of this up, why should people trust him? Thank you for listening to me today. Have a wonderful day. Talk about Goro being the property entrepreneur right now. Who was Goro as a young person? It's interesting. So remember I told you I was part of that business network. Yes. And one of the things we have to do for our retreat is do what we call our lifeline. Yeah. And so earlier today I was doing exactly that <laughs> and looking at, and you look at your life from when you were zero to where you are now. And yeah. It's like 55 key pivotal moments or core memories as what? You know, millennials call it these days, right? No, I'm a millennial, so <laughs> I can't say too much about that. But yeah, you know, there, there's some core memories there. And one of the key things I remember until I was 16, maybe 16 and a half, I was the biggest introvert and nerd you would ever meet. Wow. Yeah. And I can resonate with that. I think a lot of people that I meet, including Ethan Donati and Gary Lee, by the way, because I've asked these questions to them, they classify themselves as introverts. They're like, you don't like talking. You know, yes, we can come out on stage and talk, and but this is us putting a, a facade. So I completely, like, I can see where this is coming from. So what changed? Well, there was a few things that, that were the key catalysts, right? Uh, my dad purchased a business when I was 15. And then my dad actively deciding, Goro, you're going to work in every single job in this business and you're going to learn everything. And so it was a cash register company. And now it seems like a cash register company, there's not many jobs. We had the service division. We had the sales division. We had we had at one stage 24 employees working. Wow. Us, right? So building cash registers. Basically. No, selling and servicing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And so there was, you know, there was, there's only three companies or two companies in all of Victoria that does that. And back in 97, everyone had, a, every shop needed a cash register. Guys. And so that was one of the key catalysts. But the, one of the other catalysts was a family friend came over and still to this day, he tells a story. I was apparently on my laptop doing work and I'd come in to the kitchen, grabbed a bite to eat and said, a moderate high and walked back out. He's like, apparently he had a chat to my parents saying, What's wrong with your son? Is everything okay? 
right? And he was like, he like ignored me. I was on the computer and like, you know, and his brother-in-law was like my best friend in Dubai where I grew up. Mm. And so, you know, obviously my parents did a few things after that because they valued his opinion. He's, um, you know, he's a very inspirational man. And so one of the other things dad did was start getting me into property and business events, which he was attending when I was 16, right? So, and then as a consequence of that, one of my roles in the cash register company, and this is a trial by fire, I was going door to door as a 16-year-old, having to build rapport with a shopkeeper and sticking stickers on the cash register where they keep all their freaking money <laughs> and selling them paper rolls or, or cash registers and things like that because, you know, we were doing, like we, uh, one of our main income streams was consumables. Yeah. Right? And so I built myself up in from a complete introvert to having to be able to, I guess, straddle that line into extrovert when I needed to yeah. at that time. Yeah. And so- and Was it hard? So it was hard. <laughs> nothing nothing worth doing is easy, right? 100%. Right? Um, and you need that one person to push you, right? I, I still remember, like, you know, when I first came to Australia, right? Biggest introvert in the world. My first job was a petrol station, you know, at at a petrol station. Of course it was. Um, and, and yeah, it's the biggest stereotype, right? <laughs> but hey, look at me here, right? And uh, it's it's so funny, like, the, the business owner there, and I, I talk about this story in my book as well, right? Uh, the business owner there, his name is still Eddie. I still talk to him right now, right? Like still these days. It, it was a BP station on Sydney Road. I still remember. I still go past and I show my kids that I used to work here. Anyways, that guy had this this line, Moss, don't be a banana. You know, have s***s. You know, that's all he, every time he would say this to me, right? And it just, it seeped into my head, right? Don't be a banana, like in, in his Egyptian accent, right? And uh, basically that was the push. That I needed, basically. I remember there was a junkie that came in in the petrol station once, completely drugged out, drunk. And I switched off the petrol station. I was scared of telling him off and asking him to that I turn off the lights. And I closed the petrol station for the whole night. Like, seriously, no sale at all. And this is on Sydney Road petrol station, right? Wow. And he came up in the morning and he didn't fire me. And he gave me the biggest lecture of his life. He's like, you are a You know, excuse my friends. You are, you know, this is not how it works. And he took me out. So because the guy was so out of whack that he stayed there all night and he was there in the morning at like seven, he took me out with holding my hand and he said, slap him. And I was like, no, I'm not slapping him. He's like, no, slap him because this is how you're going to learn. And so I, I shook him up and I said, man, you need to go <laughs> like in the nicest possible way. I didn't slap him, but that was the push. Like, so everyone has that turning point, right? In their life. And so from your story's perspective, how did that change? Like when you talk about, you know, going to those property seminars, those, you know, how did all of that started feeling real and, you know, moving into this space? Well, you know, it almost starts as a journey from my first property. Yeah. Right? And so I went to all these property seminars. I was reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I'd, I'd, I'd bought in. I was all into this philosophy, right? And dad was buying properties. He did purchase like four or five properties within the one year, wow. knowing all these strategies. And I was doing, you know, I'd actually started another business within dad's business, doing the computerized point of sale, nice. which is what everyone does, right? Touch screens. Yeah. So, you know, that was doing well. And then mom and dad said, you're doing so well. You basically got your own business. You're 17. We want to give you a gift for your 18th, right? Sure. And 
they said, you've got a choice. We can buy you this dream car, this Lexus Coupe you've been dreaming of. <laughs> it has beautiful pearl white Lexus on the background of my computer screen. Like everyone had seen it. They knew I was, ta- I, I talked to everyone I knew about it. Or we can pay for your deposit on your first property. Nice. And as much as it, it was hurt, a car. No, I'm just kidding. Of course. <laughs> it was the first property. Now, that wasn't the nice. best property purchase. I learned a thing or two from that purchase. Yes. But it got me in the game. Yeah. And it got me, you know, responsible for my financial outcome. Of course. And how old were you at that time? 17. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So I had a mortgage by the time that, that it was an off the plan property, mm-hmm. an apartment in the CBD, which yeah. I'd never do again. Fraternity um, house or something like that. No, <laughs> dude. One of the times I went out clubbing, oh, yeah, I was, and I and I, I was I was one of my friends when I went out clubbing. I'm like, well, let me drop you off home. I drop her off home. Turns out it's my freaking apartment. <laughs> I was going out clubbing, and one of my friends lived in one of my places. <laughs> uh, but no, it was it was, a, it was, it was it, it, look in ten years time, it had grown fifty percent. Now people go, oh God, it grew fifty percent. Yeah, but also I purchased the property when I was 19, two years after that. Yeah. That went two and a half times yeah. in that same time. Both. So there's the opportunity cost. Both. I, I, I liaise with that. Yeah. But once again, as I said, as an as a 18, 19 year old with a mortgage, people say, oh, you, it's easy. Your parents gifted it to you. That thing was still negatively geared. I still had to pay money out yeah. of my pocket and be responsible for and it. So if you think about your, you're saying, you know, 19 year old self or 17 year old self, People who are out there right now who are 17 and 19, what is one advice that you would give to them that you couldn't give to yourself back then? It's an interesting question. One thing I would advise is, and kids these days are getting better at doing this, Mm. find your passion, but whatever work you need to do to get to your passion may not be a linear path. Of course. Right? So as you and I have done, we worked, you know, in jobs we didn't necessarily like. Percent uh, building blocks, right? It's building blocks, right? Uh, but have that work ethic, and a work ethic will get you much further in life than, you know, a chance to do your one thing you're passionate so about. True. But as long as you know when to switch it around, yes, yes. And I think that's key with what you are successful at as well. Hundred percent. I think people. Especially like 17 and 19 year old, they have a passion to be X or Y or Elon Musk or, you know, Gary V or anyone, right? You know, they have that sort of big wild dreams, right? But they're not ready to do the hard yard, right? Yeah. And so, you know, people feel ashamed of doing little jobs. You know, I was talking in one of the podcasts to another person and I said, start up a side business, drive a freaking Uber. Like who cares, right? Money. Yeah. Like who cares, right? You know, or buy a car and put it on Uber, right? You know, you need to have that mentality of hustle because, you know, no one becomes a millionaire by loving what they do at the start. You know what I mean? You have to start at places that you would hate working, right? But you would get ultimately to a place where you're loving what you're doing and it's actually making you money, right? Yes. And so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an amazing advice. You know, I completely agree and understand as to where this is coming from. So this transition, I know when we talk about, you know, you were starting up your business at 16, 17 year old, buying your first property at, and then second property at 19. How did the transition into pro- property world happen? You know, typically, you know, as a mortgage broker and then ethical investing, all of this, you know, how did that sort of, what was pivotal around some of these things? So 
when I left my first corporate, uh, my last corporate job in 2008. So yeah. I sold my first business, went to work as a CEO at that company. Didn't work out for me because they ran my company down to the ground. You can't see your baby being run down to the ground, right? So I'm like, I'm out, right? I'm, I'm out. And then I decided to move to Perth for a, for a corporate job. Wow. Well, what were you doing there? <laughs> what were you doing there? I was a BDM for an IT firm, oh, for a managed services okay. firm. You know, I was great at selling. By that time, mm. you know, learning how to sell cash registers to someone that had never seen you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you, you learn how to sell. And um, I was a really good account manager BDM, right? And so it turns out it wasn't really for me. I left there and I was kind of lost. And then I, I went to this seminar uh, by this guy called McIntyre. <laughs> and it turns out they were teaching about the Tony Robbins stuff. I was, so I just I was really into Tony Robbins, right? Yeah. I went to my first Tony Robbins event when I was 19. I was like, this guy's like Tony Robbins, but he does financial stuff. Yeah. Cool. I want to be part of it. So I remember this. I went up to Lou, who, Lou, who is still one of my best friends. I went up to her and I said, do you guys need, need any people to work for you in sales? She's like, no, we just hired. I said, I'll tell you what, give me a desk, a phone, and a list, and we'll see if you want to keep me or not. Wow. Yeah. And so, because I had nothing else to do. Yeah. I, I, I had, you know, money coming in from the property. Mm. And then I got in and I started, you know, within three months, I went from the guy who was whatever to the number one sales guy there. Right. Right. And then I think within six months, I was, you know, second in charge of the sales team. And I was then surrounded by this level of wealth I'd never really seen in my life, like yachts, parties, etc. And... You know, I was I got the opportunity to speak on stage with Richard Branson and wow. got to tour the country with Arnie, right? And th- that was all while teaching people the mindset of wealth and yeah. wealth creation, and also products that were they were interested in. Look, some of the things that I sort of I bought into everything. So any product I was selling, my rule was I've got to do it first. Yeah, and so I bought into products. Some products worked, some products didn't work, and I'd, I'd be honest with people and tell them. Yeah, and then I saw what they were doing with this thing called land banking. Yeah, and you may want to take out some of this podcast because this is this gets to what if I could make you enough sales for you to buy your own yacht one day? And I'm like, dude, I can smell the <laughs> coming off you. Just stop. <laughs> I'm never selling one of these land bankings ever. I'm out. So I left with thirty thousand dollars commission on the table and started up ten properties in ten years. Oh, so that's where it came in. So that yes. was the pivotal moment. Basically. That was the pivotal moment where I got I saw the stuff they were doing and I. And I'm like, that's not how I'm making my wealth. Yeah. This is not how it should be. That's not how the owner of the company is making his money. Yeah. Why can't we just do it a way where we show people how we're doing it? Win-win, yeah. And I'd kind of already become a bit of a mortgage broker on the side through dad because dad had become a mortgage broker after he sold the first business. Of course, yeah. And so I had the mortgage broker finance background and I was building my own property portfolio. Made sense. Yeah. Right. I'm like, why don't I just... Teach people how to do what I do. It's not rocket science. Yeah, and you know it better than them anyway, right? Yeah. Because you've been out in the mist, right? So, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, that's how 10 Properties in 10 Years was formed. As really, we're talking about the ethical background. It was ethically teaching people to do what I did. And the 10 Properties in 10 Years is a really good hook. In fact, as soon as I started that company, my previous employer tried to take me to court for it. Really? Yes, because oh. they, they claimed they wrote the book. I'm like, well, my company was registered before you before you published your book, so you can say whatever you want, but you don't <laughs> own that brand. Right? Wow, amazing. Yeah. So, and so typically, 
if I take you back down the memory lane, of course, there has been good decisions and bad decisions, yeah? Yes. What are, and I always ask this question, what are the biggest failures in your life that has made Goro, Goro today? This is a challenging question. I'll tell you why. There's a process we do with Tony Robbins, yeah. and those that have done Date with Destiny know exactly what I'm talking about. It's called effective blaming. And effective blaming is you take the story of pain and trauma in your life, and yeah. you look at what transpired after that, and sure. you realize that if it wasn't that for that pain or trauma, you wouldn't be where you are today. So it's a challenging question to answer. And so where do I start? I mean, some things that I regret, for example, when I was with Jamie and selling selling stuff for like you know electronic mini um, transactions in the in the in the stock market, uh, you know, in the S and P, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. or uh, there'd be you know forex trade that would work for some people, but it wouldn't work for everyone. And you know what? I realized after literally Dan and I calculated our losses, and we were lucky enough to be able to absorb them. We calculated our losses. We had over one million dollars of losses between trading the stock market shares as well as investing in olive trees because some random financial planner told us to right and we're like i remember this moment dad and i sat down and we looked at the balance sheets we're like we've lost a lot of money but then what sustained us we're still yeah. we're not in a bad financial position or after losing a million dollars right you think about that like okay cool property is what's keeping us afloat why don't we just put more money into property, right? That's and it. so that was the key moment. I decided that that was it. That was the name of the game. That was That's my effective blaming. After losing a million dollars in the stock market, even teaching people how to invest in Forex, I was like, cool, property it is. That's it. That's all I'm going to do. That's all I'm going to teach people now. Nothing else. And it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that, right? I think um, the pivotal moment in everyone's life has to be with the pain that they have you know, felt right, and typically, you know, for a lot of people, it's money, right? You know, them them seeing that money disappear, right? Um, you were in a lucky position that you know at least it, you know you had diversified at the, at the start of the game, right? A lot of people, you know, they put all of their eggs in one basket and then end up losing and then starting up from ground up, and you see so many horror stories out in the open, right? So it's 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 amazing as to how. You know, the learning process works for a lot of different people. So we've talked about the turning point. We've talked about the switch. Three key influential peoples in your life. And I know you would say Tony Robbins is one. Yes. Probably your dad is, you know, one. Who am I to read up? What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> um, Mosa Rez is third. No. <laughs> You're putting that one on the podcast. Uh, no. Uh, the third influential person. So, yes, Tony Robbins. I'll, I'll elaborate on it. Uh my dad is the number one most influential person in my life. And 100%. I was speaking, I was invited to uh, contribute to a magazine article for a seniors magazine. And I remember the reporter asked me recently, she said, how often do you speak to your dad, even though you don't live with each other? I said, three, four times a week. Yeah. You know, I, in fact, just today I spoke to, today I spoke to him three times. Yeah. Right. And that's a normal conversation with us. We'll mm. catch up maybe once, twice a week. And she's, oh, wow. I'm like, isn't that what? or family relationships yeah, right one should be doing that yeah yeah and this is so my dad is my number one influencer in my life right you know people talk about influences very important right i think um and apologies i'm yeah. cutting you off but you know, someone said to me the other day that when kids are growing up their first ideal is not superman iron man it's their dad right yeah. they want to copy you they want to listen to you they want to see you know they want to act like you right 
my and they take good and bad at the same time right and so you have to be really careful as to how you're influencing them at the same time right so well that's my third influence in my life you've led right into that right my son is my third influence in my life and it's it's almost a straddling between if i could just be half as good as dad as what my dad was to me yeah then my mission here is accomplished and and as a saying is your dad is one of the only human beings that wish you did better than him in life 100% that's very true that's very true um, yeah my my son is a major influence right and you know, of course tony robbins is is my second influence so those are the three influences within my life as people i either look up to or learn from yeah and it's, it's amazing i think you know i've always felt and you find commonalities between people who are successful right and i always feel that people who run closely knit families become very successful businessmen i don't know why i don't understand the mentality maybe it's because they are more content in life uh, and money is not the driver but you know i've felt that commonality every time you know i i i interviewed win and he runs a really closely knit family you know you know he's very close to that and uh, that's how i feel as well a lot of my influencing come like you know typically from my perspective no one has ever done business in mm. you know our family at all ever right and wow. uh, and so you know taking and going into the business world or it was almost like me rebelling in in the in my family right uh, but the only person who was there to support was basically my dad is like no nah, no nah, do it do it do it you know i want to see you know you succeed right and uh, and so you know people take various different influences you know ultimately you need that anchor point in your life right and and so true right you know your dad is the only person in the world that wants you to do better than them it's an amazing saying it's an amazing it's a heartfelt sort of epiphany right you know that comes to you in, in the head that that's so true let's talk about the ndis journey and the ethical journey how did that came into place well, it's an interesting story uh so a few things happened all at the same time you know i was doing well relatively well you know financially in life and i saw one of my friends he'd always be hanging out with this guy called richard brands right <laughs> He'd like he's Richard Branson would wish his mum publicly happy birthday and stuff like that. like dude how are you so close to Richard and at the same time there was another story going on where dad's like hey in a year's time we've got 20 properties all heading from interest only to principal and interest yeah that's an extra now look for one property people go oh shit I've got to pay extra yeah 20 properties that's extra $200,000 income every year we had to magically find find yeah and i'm like and that's a mixture of you know um commercial commercial residential everything and the commercials were doing well and and so i'll come back to the richard story cuz that's important and then i'm like i love the returns of commercial but i love the growth of residential yeah. i i love the cash flow of apartments mm. but they suck at growth <laughs> right And so I want I want my 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 thing I needed to look for was like the holy ground. Yeah. You know, commercial returns residential property. And now mm. we, you and I live in that space now. It sounds really easy, but back 7 years ago, it was impossible, right? And the interest rates were back then what they are now roughly, yeah. right? And then going back to my friend, I pick up a phone go, "AJ, what do you got? Like, can you invite me to hang out with Richard?" I'm like, "Please, because we are one day this is around about the same time 
dad had this conversation with me and he goes, Cora, I've got an invite to hang out with Richard on his island. Oh. I want it. I've got one ticket left. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right? Out of my fridge. Like, hell yes, right? And I remember I was about to hit the donate button to charity because that's yeah. what you need to do. You need to donate. Back seven years ago, you had to donate $15,000 US really? to hang out with Richard for a week on his island where he'd show up for one or two days. Yeah. Right? And the rest of the time, it was networking. Mm. So that hit the donate button. Then I took a stop. Like, I've already spoken on stage with Richard. Mm. What am I going there for? Just a pretty Facebook profile photo? Yeah. What do I really want to connect yeah. and be part of that network and yeah. that mindset? Because if I'm going to be there for a week and he's only going to be there for one or two days, I want to know what they talk about. So I pick up the phone to Ajay and said, Ajay, what do you guys talk about on the island? Mm. And he said, we talk about a thing called social enterprise. And back then, no one knew what social enterprise or B Corps or all of these other things that have been around for the last few years are about. I'm like, I'm going to find out what social enterprise is. Sure. I found out and I realized what it was and I felt like I would be an imposter if I was in that island, even though I had the financial means. <laughs> I don't want to be an imposter on the island. I want to yeah. go there to connect. That's not authentic, mm. right? And I said, I refuse to step foot on the island until I have a successful social enterprise. Now, success to me back then meant seven figures. And I wrote that down. Yeah. Successful social enterprise before I go and hang with Richard. And I put it out there in the universe. And I was like, it'll come to me where it needs to happen. 10 properties was kind of doing its thing. We had that, you know, I had to worry about the tsunami of, you know, principal payments that were coming, coming into our lives. And a month later, one of my clients, Nicole, came to me and said, Goro, there's this thing called NDIS that's about to start up. And there's a pathway to build housing. And I've got a resident who's got funding. Can you explore more on how we do it? And I, I, she sent me a video at midnight explaining what it was the night before. So I'm like, I've still got the video. We were looking at it the other day. And I'm like, actually, this could be what I'm looking for. And so I delved deeper and deeper and deeper, and there was like no information seven years ago because NDIS had barely rolled out of Geelong. It was still in its test case in Geelong. Yeah, very uh, infancy. Yeah. Super infancy, right? And then we looked at it. I put the pieces together along with my colleague, uh, my employee back then, Joe, who used to work for me. And we kind of put the pieces together. Actually, this could be what I'm looking for. This is the social enterprise ahead of us. So we called Nicole back in, showed all the stuff that we did. She's like, okay, cool, let's start up a company. So we started up a company thinking there'd be a side gig for managing people with disabilities to live in their own homes, maybe have like five or ten properties. Yeah. Jeez, we were wrong about that. <laughs> so that, that that company then, we ended up going to market and dad promoted it through his network, I promoted through my network. So in the next six months, we raised $10 million of personal friends and family capital. Wow. To build right. them. To build them. Right. And so we were first to market to build, and it was kind of like, the best analogy is we were building the plane as it was flying. Wow. Right? So no one knew, no one had ever done a head lease for these things before. Yeah. So we had to pay $20,000 to go get a head lease made from yeah. lawyers that kind of half knew what they did and took six months for the lease to be made. Yeah. Right? These were the cool things at the start that are like, holy shit, you know, we don't know when we didn't know for the first few years if we'd ever earn any money from it. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. Because yeah. we no one had no one had ever outside of a charity ever lodged an SDA request with the NDIS. Wow! Turns out we were the one of the very first few to actually do it. 
So they still, to this day, the quote template for NDIS is based on our original Word document <laughs> that we sent to the NDIS because they never had a quote template. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And so that's how early we were to the place. And it's it's amazing like how the, the work that you've done in the NDIS space, you know, I personally enjoy an ecosystem that you've created around this, right? This is not just about providing the housing, but it's, it's, a, win, it's a true win-win scenario that you've created. You know, I truly believe that and there is a lot of people who are doing a lot of work in NDIS space, right? And you mean he, pretending to do some? Yeah, yeah. I, I go on my high horse of hundred percent, right? And look, you know, and people who have watched me and listened to me, right? I've been quite vocal about NDIS in a negative sense as well, right? Actually, so yeah. And so, typically, the reason where my nervousness always sits is that you know you're playing with the lives of disabled people who deserve the best in their life, right? Yes. And so, if you are building houses over graves and god forbid you know that's what i'm saying it's it's not going to be a good karma right and so that's how i felt every time a sales agent came out to me and said hey buy this property and be like no right truly because you know you don't have an ecosystem you don't know what you're doing you have no idea as to how these participations work all you're doing is taking a cut on this build and basically yes and you know, typically every time I would talk to you, I'd be like, well, this guy's doing an amazing work because he has an ecosystem that sits behind him. And so there are participants that are looked after. You know, there is housing that is well qualified in a nicest area built to basically support these people, right? Um, and so it's a true win-win scenario that you're creating versus a lot of people that are out there. You see all these Facebook ads saying, you know, get 300000 or $200,000 in, in money and be like, if you are making that sort of money, what is participate? What is participant getting, right? And yes. you know, how are you even supporting them with the support services that they really need yes. by pushing out all of these money to to the investors, typically, right? Yes, that's and so that's where I was quite conflicted. Always that you know, yes, you're creating a win for the investor, but India's is not about investors. It's about ethical investing, making sure that participate participants or disabled people come to the forefront of all of this, right? And so you are building all of these uh, these houses in anticipation that there would be more disabled people out in the world, right? Basically, that's how that's how I heard all of these Facebook news, is right. And so that's why I kept investing in India secret for like five years, yeah, right, because I didn't want the. I knew this wasn't a large volume game, well, and then I saw all these guys do starting doing these volumes, volumes, volumes. I'm like, okay, cool. I've now got to show what we've been, what we've already done. Done, yeah. Instead of pioneer, right? Yeah. So you know, you have every right to show how it's done in a proper way, yes. right? We learned a thing or two, right? Yeah. We made the mistakes of going to a volume builder, right? We make the mistakes of modifying a regular house plan. Yeah, we made the mistakes of, and at the start, we had to worry about this last mistake. We were worried about the over engineering of the house. Mm. At the start, we had to worry because we didn't know if it was going to be a regular house or an NDIS house. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? That's Those were great learnings to have to focusing just... I almost liken it to what you do in, in terms of, you know, rooming accommodation and co-living where you've got to focus on the end person first. 100%. Right? Yeah. And just like you can build a rooming house that has two bathrooms in it, which... Yeah, technically it's a rooming house, but it's not a very good one, is it? Yeah. Right? Same way that we build high-quality houses that literally, today I just finished signing off on some massive luxury upgrades as standard. Like, we're doing, like, upgraded facades, what you'd find out of a really luxury home building. Mm. 
you know, lighting in the bulkheads, like stuff that you get on these luxury homes. 100%. Like, if a sales agent was off-selling it, he'd be like, why the hell are you doing that? Yeah. Right? But, I mean, ultimately, these people are going to live there for a very long time, right? And so, you want them to feel this like a normal home, right? You don't want them to be just another investment property where they're just making the bare ends meet, right? Yeah. These are not numbers. These are, yeah. And so this one thing that I find out in the industry really disgusting and you almost touched on it. I don't know if you knew about it or didn't, but you, you've really touched on this. And so a lot of promoters out there are going and saying, you can take 100% of the reasonable rent contribution, mm. which comes from the participant through to the SDA provider. And they're like, well, supposedly, yeah. right? This is theory. And yes. they're like, okay, because of that, you'll get 180, 200,000 a year or whatever number they yeah. they want to they want to promote. Because yeah. yes, on paper, that would be Possible. the maximum you could get. Yes. However, RRC, which is the equivalent of 10,000 per participant mm-hmm. per year, consists of two very important things. One, it consists of common rent allowance. Now, if you're like our first participant, who acquired a disability later on in their life and already has a property, they're not getting CRA. They're not getting Commonwealth rental Yes. Yeah. Because they already have assets. They fail the assets test. Test. Yeah. Right? Mm. They fail the assets test. They've got to pay the CRA out of their pocket. Mm-hmm. Now, the second component that they get is disability support pension. Now, people with disabilities don't have any form of income apart from a DSP. Of course. Yeah. If you're taking 25% of their DSP, the providers taking seventy five percent for their electricity, food, living expenses. What are they going to live? Yeah, exactly. Now, yeah, and so I find that behavior disgusting. And a lot of people are doing that, right? Yeah. You know, basically that's what's happening out in the industry, yeah. right? So we tell um, participants, you don't it, it, like honestly, if you don't need to, if you're not in a position to pay, don't yeah. pay us. I think, and we don't pass any of that on to landlords. If we do get paid any of that, they go straight to our retention team. We do things like, okay, you want a new garden bed for the house? Yeah. Right, we'll buy it for you. Of course. You. Yeah. And and typically, I think there is a big, um, and I've, I've never said this out in the open, right? I think the biggest problem in NDIS is NDIS. Yes. Yeah. Because of the way they put stuff on their website, which is flawed, mm-hmm. which people can read and interpret in various different ways without understanding the nitty gritty around a lot of these things. And so there is a massive education piece that needs to happen at the participation, but also at the NDIS place, right? Because a lot of the stuff that sits on the website looks great on paper, but when you try doing it in reality, it's a completely different story, right? Exactly. And look, I want to touch on this, which is really interesting. So NDIS recently have factored in risk. Yeah. Right? That's why they've increased the rents, but also they're having, for example, the rentals out west in, in we'll speak about Melbourne, for those that are in Melbourne, mm. out west in Werribee, say, are higher than the rentals out in... Lilydale. Yeah. Now, there's a lot more participant demand in Lilydale than Werribee. And yeah. you go, initially, I was like, how do those numbers work? How does that And mean? I realized they factored in risk. Sure. So, and what people are saying, oh, there's more, pa- they're misinterpreting data saying, oh, there's more people that need it out west. Yeah. Well, no, they don't. Yeah. They don't. NDS is giving you a risk fee effectively. Well, you have to build there in anticipation for the demand that yes. comes through there. They may or may not come, right? Yeah. And there's only 6,000. Oh, by the way, the data is 6,900 residents across Victoria, across all four categories, and only 30% of them are looking for accommodation. Yeah. That's nothing. Yeah. Like, if you want to de-risk it, speak to yourself and, you know, build a rooming house. Of course. Right. 
yeah. that's you know if you're worried about guarantees and incomes and that that's what you do is what I tell people all the time 100% 100% wrapping this up what would goro say to his old self if he had a chance fuck we lived a good life <laughs> are you saying you're not living a good life no it, it, what i would say to my old self like yeah we we lived a good life like reflect on take time to reflect on those magic moments that yes. make life what it is because 100%. even if it's a challenge as we've talked about earlier it's yeah. it's it's a gift that's been provided to us by the universe god or 100%. whatever your belief is right every adversity that comes into your life you have to take that as a challenge and convert it into an opportunity and if you know the art of doing that then you would always be successful right i think people are frustrated because they don't know how to take that adversity in and use one of those magical powers that you are gifted by the god or whoever and change it into an opportunity you know there are several ways to do it i think people just are blind and focused enough to cry out river because that's the easiest way out right ultimately i heard simon sinek say that the day which was quite beautiful that what you need to do is not focus on the money what you need to focus on is improving other people's life and the money would follow right, right. Uh, and so you know typically that's the mindset that you know would always be prevailing one the one that wins you know so give a shout out you know where can people find goro online offline you know don't give your address yes. uh but uh Where can we where can people find you? You can stalk me on Facebook. I'm the only one with my name Goro G O R O. I'm I can't if there's other copycats out there I can't blame them but you know I'm the only one with my name Goro. Uh as I say in Hindi Goro ke liye Goro banna padta hai, right? Um You find me on LinkedIn. That's a really easy place to connect with me because I don't always accept Facebook requests. Uh you you know you can check me out on 10 properties in 10 years ethical property investments. and if you're interested in SDA even empowered livability but the easiest way to connect with me is find me on facebook or linkedin or awesome. my personal friends now my parting question and this is you know the user's interest yes what's with the mustache what's the story behind this come on you have to uh, you, know, you know i wish there was a really cool story it but has they, to be. They actually you know my sister yeah. right was getting married and she got she was getting married in the gurdwara she got by the way it looks she, cool it yeah. looks amazing i don't know how you swing it but it's it i had to go through the ugly phase <laughs> like so what happened when my sister told me to first start growing it and she told me like a year in advance i'm getting married it's in the gurdwara you better look good in a bug otherwise you know um for those that don't know what a bug is it's it's you know the turban and you better look good in a bug otherwise you're not allowed at my wedding right <laughs> So sister's orders, you know, she's a little big sister. She said, "Grow the mustache." And so I did, but I've got a problem. I I tried to grow a goatee ever since I was a little kid, and I can't nick these two. Oh yeah. So I then trained it to naturally grow up, and it kind of stuck around and I shaved it once, and my wife then said, "Please grow it back quickly." Oh. I I, I I you know, you, you look if you look you look like a 12-year-old. <laughs> Uh, and this was in my 30s, right? You look like a 12-year-old. I'm like no one wants to hear that in their 30s. So, <laughs> I decided to grow some facial hair to kind of look close to my age. Looks amazing. Yes. Thank you, brother. Thank you for coming in and for users, listeners, yes. if you have any questions, comments, look feel free to jump in. Amazing episode, a lot of value coming out. I love stories where the mindset has moved you quite significantly in your life. 
uh, reach out to me, reach out to Gore if you have any questions. Thank you for listening to us. Stay safe, keep smiling, keep investing. This is Moss and Gore. Check on. Adios. Yeah.